Before we begin, here's a special code that gets you a 20% discount subscription to New Scientist. The code is POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe and you get all the contents of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories to listen to on the app. So that's newscientist.com slash POD20 gets you the 20% discount. Hello and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your host, Penny Sarchet. And I'm your other host, Rowan Hooper. Welcome to the show. This week, we're also joined by New Scientist reporters Claire Wilson in London and Leah Crane in Chicago. Hello, both. Hi. Hello. Coming up on the show this week, we'll catch up on what we know about Omicron. We're finding out new stuff about Saturn's moon, Mimas. And we've got a startling report on the sexual behaviour of dolphins. Yeah, you will never look at dolphins in the same way again (laughs) after this. As well as all that, we've got a really interesting piece on how an app on your phone called Wobot can help your mental health. But let's first start with the biggest science story in the world this week, which came when we heard that the first pig human heart transplant had finally taken place uh, successfully in Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah, so the recipient is a man called David Bennett. He's 57 and he was deemed too ill to have a human heart transplant. So he got a pig one. Now, look. Pig organs have been touted for years now as possible substitutes for human organs, but it's only just happened. And Claire, I know you've been following this for ages and you've been reporting this. So tell us all about it. Yes, this is uh, an amazing breakthrough. It's an overused word in science, but I I think it really is. It was amazing to see this happen. It it came a little bit out of the blue. The big question, I think, is it's always been whether they can do this without triggering the person's immune system to immediately start attacking the heart and that would quickly cause it to just fail. Yeah. So several groups have been trying for years to breed these special genetically modified pigs so that their their tissues can be accepted by a human immune system. In the end, the company that is behind this first transplant, they've changed 10 genes in total in their pigs. They inactivated three pig genes and they've added six human ones to the pig's DNA to try to reduce this immune reaction. And then they also inactivated a 10th gene and that would otherwise have caused the pig's heart to continue growing after the transplant because pig's hearts are normally slightly bigger than human hearts. In some ways, having a bigger heart would be good, wouldn't it? You no, know, <laughs> no, no, we don't want that. No. You don't want it to burst out of your chest, no. And so 10 genes doesn't sound like very much, does it? I take your point, um, I'm, but I think we still don't know yet whether it will be enough to control the immune response. The immune yeah. response, as we have all been learning during COVID, it's incredibly complex. And it's fantastic that this man has done okay so far, so far as we know, but it's very early days. And even if that kind of the initial like attack dogs of the immune system have been controlled, we still have to wait and see if you know, it's different branches of the immune system might get going on the heart later in the coming days and weeks and even months and even years. So we know that thousands of people die each year waiting for transplants or, you know, there are plenty of people who are deemed sort of not even well enough to be on transplant lists for various reasons. Is this going to be the answer, do you think? Well, maybe in the long term. I think we should be careful not to give anybody currently on the waiting list false hopes that this is all done and dusted now. Maybe, you know, if it works and if this operation 
goes well, they are likely to repeat the procedure on somebody else and then in slowly increasing numbers and start considering it for people who were not as sick as him to begin with, which will help outcomes. But that could be years away before it becomes routine. Although one transplant surgeon said to me that he thought it might be years, but it might be a small number of years, (laughs) not a large number. And what about, I know there used to be concerns about like retroviruses in the pig genome jumping out. And for years, we've heard people suggesting that maybe we could use sort of gene editing to to stop that risk. Is that a risk here? Has that gone away? Mm. Yeah, it's a great point because you know we've all written stories. I've written stories saying this was one of the major stumbling blocks, and um, this company just hasn't hasn't tried to edit that gene. A- another researcher explained it to me, and he's not connected with the company financially, but he has done a little bit of research alongside them. But he says it's just become less of a concern. Concerns seem to have faded for a couple of reasons. Partly because we have had successful transplants of individual pig cells into humans in people with diabetes, and we have not seen those viruses cross over. And also, with there's been a lot of animal research before this first human pig transplant actually took place. They tried to um, transplant pig organs into baboons and other primates and they didn't see it cross over into the primates either so it is something that they are going to be watching very very closely for in this first recipient so if this does carry on if if it works it's going to be quite helpful in the future with the uh, providing a big source of organs for us of course yeah that is why there is so much excitement around it because there are you know literally thousands of people dying every year because they just didn't get an organ in time So if the initial trials go well, you could potentially breed almost unlimited numbers of pigs just to make all the organs you need. And, you know, this company, it is also developing kidneys and lungs from pigs. It's got that on its website. It's actually being quite tight lipped about this first operation. But you can see from its website, it is trying to develop that. Pigs are quite fast to breed. They have um, about eight piglets in a litter and they they can be ready to breed in their first year of life. So the potential is amazing. Okay, so look, I just want to look to the future a bit more, (laughs) perhaps perhaps too far. But I know we use pigs because you know the organs are roughly the same size, so that that's that's one good reason to use them. But could you get an organ from a, a different gene edited animal? you know, like a pair of lungs from another animal or, you know, cat's eyes to help you see in the dark or something, you know. Hmm, interesting. I mean, it does make you wonder about the limits of of what the human body could accept. But then, you know, it's funny when you think about it, like some people are born with one kidney and do absolutely fine with that. Some people are born with three kidneys. So if you think the the body's Ah. tolerance for kidneys, like goes from, (laughs) it can rise by as much as threefold. Um, So it does make you wonder. Some people have a heart on the opposite side of their body and apparently do fine. So who knows? Now it's time for, uh, how should I put it? Um, A marmalade dropper of a story (laughs) about dolphins. So Rowan spoke this week with biologist Patricia Brennan from Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. And they chatted about her latest research suggesting that bottlenose dolphins have clitorises that evolve for pleasure. Now, Patty, thanks for joining us. I know our listeners are going to be very keen to hear about sexual pleasure in dolphins, but let's step back a bit first because most of us don't know about 
much about sexual behaviour in dolphins at all, or, or the mating system of dolphins. So perhaps you could start by telling us a bit about that. Sure. So dolphins are well known to show a wide array of sexual behaviors. And what's most interesting about their sexual behavior actually is that it's not just for reproduction. So they have sex to solidify their social bonds. So there is a lot of sexual activity that goes on. There's not only heterosexual sex, but also homosexual sex. And this is pretty frequently observed. It's not like every once in a while you'll see it. It's actually pretty common, both females with females, uh, but also males with males. So they're very sexual. They're, they're hypersexual. I think um, someone, maybe you've described them as before, and very promiscuous. So from that work you've done in the past, looking at the reproductive anatomy of females, is that how you found this new stuff about the dolphin clitoris? Yeah, exactly. So we're getting all these samples shipped to us you know, they come in frozen from stranding networks, basically dolphins that have died of, of natural causes. And we would open this up and then we're we're looking at the vagina and looking at these vagina folds, but there would always be this giant clitoris right at the base of the <laughs> vagina, at the entrance of the yeah. vagina. And over time we were like, oh, wow, you know, look at these clitorises. They're so well developed. They would be really interesting to look into. And we were sure that that there were some pretty good descriptions in there already. So we were surprised to find that, that there, w- there weren't. And so it became an opportunity for us to try to understand a little bit more about their sexual behavior, since this is what we're interested in. When you say giant clitoris, what sort of size are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you know, just external parts. So the clitoris body, what you can see on the outside, is maybe about two inches long in the adults. Right. So pretty okay. sexy. Yeah, yeah. And so what have you found out? What do you think is, tell us about the function of the clitoris in dolphins? What we found is basically two lines of evidence that suggest that the the clitoris functions for pleasure. The first one is the erectile tissue. And and erectile tissue is basically a type of tissue that fills up with blood. And it goes from being flaccid to being turgid, being hard. It's the same kind of tissue that would be in the penis as well. And so in the clitoris, We know that in human females, there is plenty of erectile tissue, and it also perfuses with blood during arousal. And so we find the exact same type of tissue in the dolphin, actually with very similar shape. They have these long arms that merge underneath a clitoris body. And we find not only that there is evidence that these erectile tissues are are filling up with blood, but we also found that they change shape. The erectile tissue changes shape as the animals become adults. So every time you find something that during adulthood is when it really becomes well-developed, that indicates that it has a function in a reproductive context. And then the other one has to do with the innervation of the clitoris. So we find that there are very large nerves. Some of them are almost half a millimeter in diameter, which is pretty big. And uh, they're everywhere in the clitoris, particularly right underneath the skin, but they're uh, well distributed throughout. And what we find as well is that there are these free nerve endings that reach right underneath the skin of the clitoris. And the skin is about a third of the thickness of the adjacent skin of the genital slit. And so what does that mean? Well, dolphins have very thick skin because they live in the water. They have blubber and thick skin. So if you have skin that's thinner right on the clitoris body, that means that there must have been some kind of selection to make that skin thinner so that it's more sensitive. And that's exactly what we see. And those free nerve endings right underneath the skin support that idea. And then finally, we also identified sensory structures that are very similar to genital corpuscles that have been described in human clitoris as well, 
that are known to be there specifically for pleasure. Okay, so there's that evidence that there's a, a function of pleasure, but can you, I mean, how do they have sex? How do dolphins have sex? Because, <laughs> you know, I know bonobos have face-to-face sex and that's unusual for primates. And so you can imagine some sort of stimulation going on there. Yeah. But what about dolphins? And do they hold their breath? And do the is there a lot of stimulation going on? Yeah, so from the evidence that people have described, and I don't study dolphins in the wild, but this is from my reading of what they do in the wild, when there is heterosexual copulation, the males will generally flip underneath the females. So the males are holding their breath. The females may not necessarily be doing so. Right. Uh, and the males get underneath the female, and then their penis comes out of the genital slit. So they have a, a penis that's kept inside the body because of hydrodynamic reasons. So they get underneath the female, and then the penis comes out, and then they're basically trying to penetrate the female genital slit. The clitoris is right there at the entrance of the vagina. So actually, if you think about it, it's weird that in species where the clitoris has moved away from the vagina, because then it becomes harder to stimulate it during copulation, right? Whereas if the clitoris is right inside the vagina entrance, any kind of stimulation going of a penis going in is going to stimulate it. So the location of the clitoris is kind of like prime for being in a good place to be stimulated. But generally, dolphins don't copulate for long periods of time. The copulations are brief, necessarily because they're in the water, but they do have multiple intermissions. And so there could be multiple opportunities for that clitoris to get touched and stimulated during heterosexual copulation. But I think that what's what's more interesting is homosexual interactions because females have been seen stimulating each other's clitorises with their flippers and their snouts. And so there's plenty of evidence to suggest that this probably feels pretty good for a female dog. <laughs> uh, something just occurred to me, but, you know, do they have... Do they have an orgasm? Do they have a sort of post-copulatory cigarette <laughs> afterwards, you know? Well, for their sake, I hope they do, but I really don't know. I mean, okay, but to put it differently, do they do they show any sort of satisfying behaviour, you know, to some indication that they've had some release or some something pleasurable has happened to them? Yeah, that's it's an excellent question, right? And that it's really hard to tell because when we ask these questions of other animals that we study, so for example, primates, we can see the primates when they're having sex, they're vocalizing, they are grimacing, their eyes are kind of rolling in the back of their head, their heart rate is getting elevated. So there are multiple signs that we can recognize that, whoa, that, that probably felt pretty good right there. But with dolphins, they're so different from ourselves, right? Their bodies are built in such a different ways. The faces are so different from our faces. How would right. we actually know when we when we look what such a response would look like for a dolphin? I think that it's just, it's kind of hard to answer these questions. And this is part of the reason why we wanted to do this study, is to see whether we could come up with some criteria through the anatomy that can allow us to ask these questions of animals that can really be kept in the lab and can we just then go look and make some predictions about what we might find for animals that have interesting sexual behaviors but that we can really experiment with. Wow amazing stuff that was Rowan speaking with biologist Patricia Brennan and we've got more from her an interview with her in the magazine this week we'll post a link to that in our show notes. Time out time to tell you about our sponsor Brilliant. Brilliant has an extensive library of interactive courses, exploring things like the science of infinity, casino probability, and there's even a course on how search engines work. 
Coming up, we have an amazing story on a robot therapist called Wobot. If you come away from that wanting to learn more about how AI works, Brilliant has a super in-depth course that explains the inner workings of artificial neural networks and how these programs are able to function like a human brain. Also, we'll be chatting about water on the moon a little later, and in Brilliant's course, The Physics of Every Day, you can learn the science behind how the moon controls Earth's tides. Whether you're a beginner or advanced, Brilliant is a fun way to learn real problem solving by doing it yourself. You can get started learning on Brilliant today for free, and the first 200 listeners to sign up using our special link will get 20% off unlimited access to all the courses on Brilliant for a whole year. That link is brilliant.org slash new scientist. We'll pop a link in the show notes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. And now it's Omicron time. So the World Health Organization said this week that it expects more than half of people in Europe to catch the Omicron coronavirus variant in the next six to eight weeks. And many countries, including the UK and the US, have been reporting record cases. But it's been about seven weeks now since the variant, this particular variant, was identified and started really surging around the world. So Penny, what do we know about it now? How much do we know about it? The variant does seem to be resulting in something like 20 to 70% fewer hospitalizations than Delta, but it is clearly much more infectious. And because of that, plenty of people are still ending up in hospital and, and putting the strain that we're seeing on healthcare systems So do we know now why Omicron is so different to Delta? And is it down to those like 50 mutations that it's got? Yeah, so we know that Delta has a lot of mutations. um, So that will be why that's how it's evolved. And that includes around 30 in its spike protein, which is that key protein that it uses to interact with our cells. And it's also what our immune systems use to recognize and hopefully defeat the virus if we've had it before or if we're learning about the virus or we have a vaccine. Anyway, we don't fully know what each of those mutations does yet, but we can say a heavily mutated spike protein probably plays a significant role in the variant's ability to escape our immune system. So that probably explains why, you know, even if you've had Delta or uh, two vaccine shots, you could still catch this variant. And what about the variant's apparently reduced severity and the idea that, you know, that that's because so many people have recently had COVID or have had a vaccine? Yeah, I think so. it's kind of a, a, a moving target at the moment because it, the context of, of where the virus is acting is changing. So many of us now have had one or multiple uh, vaccine shots. Loads of people have actually had a strain of coronavirus. So to some extent, that probably is contributing to the reduced severity. But equally, you know, there have been studies comparing people who recently had Delta and people who recently had Omicron. So it does look over and above that there is some reduction in severity with Omicron. And there are also some preliminary experiments in animals that suggest that this variant is inherently less likely to cause severe symptoms. So what's this about that Omicron infects cells differently? If that's true, does that 
affect the behavior of the virus? Yeah, so this is all quite quite fascinating, really thinking about how the virus works. So previous variants would basically fuse with our cells and then they sort of empty their contents into our cells and get replicating. But Omicron seems to first enter our cells, um, not by fusing with them, but actually by being sort of engulfed by an outer cell membrane and sort of bubbling in in a little bud inside our cells. And, and that's when it then sort of opens up and releases its insides. And that process is a slower process. And combined with some of the other sort of um, preliminary experiments and data on this, it might explain why Omicron seems to affect more the upper respiratory tract rather than the lower respiratory tract. Wow. And so is that linked to the severity and the, you know, the reasons why you are less likely to get pneumonia from so it? So that's what I thought and, and maybe in this case, but it, apparently that's not necessarily the case. So bizarrely, um, SARS, the original SARS virus, infected cells the same way that Omicron does, um, but that was much more severe. But the shift to being an upper respiratory tract infection is interesting. This variant seems to be much more prevalent in saliva than other variants. And, and that might mean that it's a lot easier to spread by talking, coughing, singing, shouting and that might then explain why it's more infectious but there's other reasons that it might be more infectious so the fact that it can infect more people um, obviously contributes to that and also perhaps it's more likely to cause asymptomatic cases so people are going around spreading it without realizing they have it and let's talk about moons. We'll talk about our moon in a minute, but first Saturn's moon, Mimas. Leia, why is Mimas in the news this week? Well, it may have an ocean. It's a really small moon, and it doesn't look like any of the other ocean worlds that we've seen before, but measurements from NASA's Cassini mission suggested that it might have water underneath its surface, and now some calculations of how it's heated from the inside may have confirmed that it's actually possible that it could really have this secret ocean. Wow. So, but isn't it just a cold, dead rock? Yeah, it's it's nothing special to look at, really. Uh, It's the one that looks a little bit like a Death Star. It's got one big crater on it. But it basically looks like a big, cold, dead rock. But observations in 2014 of how it wobbles as it spins indicated that something weird is going on in its interior. And researchers suspected that it could be water sloshing around under an icy shell. Right. And so this week, the, we've got results from a planetary scientist who, who saw those results and set out to, but thought they were ridiculous and set out to show that there couldn't possibly be an ocean under this shell. But she's found out there actually is one. Yeah. So she told me that, that she started doing these calculations because she wanted to prove that there was absolutely no way there's an ocean in Mimas. Um, you know, a ridiculous notion. And then found out that actually it does work and it does explain those observations extremely well. Um, and her calculations fit exactly the previous calculations that were done after those Cassini observations. So she and her colleague made simulations of how Mimas's interior is stretched and flexed and heated by Saturn's gravity as it orbits the planet and what that heating might do to an icy shell. And what they found is that the heating could be enough to support a global liquid ocean buried under 24 to 29 kilometers of ice. Wow. So if Mimas has an ocean, many more could too? Other moons? Yeah, so basically if Mimas has an ocean, lots of places could have an ocean. And the researchers have called these stealth ocean worlds. 
there are a lot of icy moons in our solar system. And if Mimas, this, as Rowan said, sort of cold, dead rock could have an ocean, then almost any of them could. Now look, closer to home to our moon, there's a Chinese rover on there at the moment. We've reported on this before, the Chang'e 5 rover. And this week there's a paper out, it's detected water on the moon directly. Yeah, so we have known for a long time that there is water on the moon. But the thing here is that it's the first time we've detected water on the moon from a robot actually on the moon. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, we've seen water on the moon, but we haven't touched water on the moon, basically. That's what researchers call ground truthing it. Ground truthing. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> we've, nice we've now phrase. got yeah, the ground cool truth in situ measurements. And the paper says that the researchers estimate there are about 120 parts per million of water in the lunar regolith. And it probably comes mostly from the solar wind, which are these particles that are blown by the sun. And when you say it touched it, it and it's 120 parts per million, that's actually not much. is It's probably still feels dry if you actually touched it. I mean, in practical terms, if you're living on the moon in the future, you're not really going to be getting your water from regolith, are you? Or are you? Probably not. Pretty much every single thing on Earth is wetter than 120 parts per million of water. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, practically, there are better places to get water from on the moon. There is ice in some permanently shadowed craters and cold traps. Condensing water out of the regolith or the dust would be a colossal venture. You'd need an awful lot of dust to get any amount of water. Next up, we're hearing about a new way to talk to your phone in a way that's actually beneficial for your mental health. Rowan spoke with our columnist, Annalee Newitz, about this. So, Annalee, you've made friends with an entity called Wobot. What is this thing? Uh, please tell us about it. So, Wobot is one of many therapy apps uh, that are available now uh, for mobile devices. And it was invented by a psychology researcher at Stanford named Allison Darcy. And Wobot will simply ask you questions and engage with you when you're feeling depressed or anxious. And it's really like a little electronic friend uh, sitting inside your phone to talk to you when you're feeling upset. So Wobot works in two ways. Um, like many apps, Wobot does have push notifications. So on a typical day, Wobot might check in, like a little message might pop up saying, how are you feeling today? Or do you want to learn something about cognitive therapy? Uh, yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hello. Or if I'm having one of those moments where I'm feeling anxious, like somebody said something that pissed me off, or I'm just feeling frustrated, um, then I might open the app and sort yeah. of work through what um, I'm experiencing in real time. Can we try it now? So um, right now, I just opened up my Wobot app. And uh, at the top of the app, there's a cute little robot head. And Wobot says, tell me, what are you doing at the moment? Uh, and then has a little pencil emoji, which is prompting me to write in. So right now, I'm going to say, I'm on a podcast. So tell me, how are you feeling today? Wobot asks. <laughs> Um, I'm feeling content today. Now, Robot's given me a list of possible answers. And so I can uh -huh. say I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm tired or depressed. And each of those answers has an emoji associated with it. And so one right. of the delightful things about Wobot is that it's not just this kind of 
objective feeling therapist character. Um, it feels like a goofy little robot from a TV show or from yeah. your favorite science fiction novel. And so when it communicates, oftentimes Wobot will make jokes, it'll make mistakes, it often admits that it doesn't really understand human culture. And so there's a kind of a, a flavor to the conversation that you wouldn't get with a really typical therapist. And so it sounds like a lot of fun, this, but do you start find yourself actually sort of leaning on Wobot and using it, you know, for therapeutic purposes? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I mean, of course, Wobot doesn't replace actual therapy with a human therapist. This is really a tool that was developed, as Alison Darcy told me when I interviewed her, it's developed for those moments when it's 2 a.m. and you wake up and you're in a cold sweat and you're having some kind of anxious thought. And no, you're not going to be able to call your therapist at that moment. Um, and you shouldn't be calling your therapist right. at 2 a.m. But if you have Wobot, what it allows you to do is just sort of externalize some of the thoughts that you're having. Um, the idea behind cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what informs this particular app, is that just by kind of writing down what you're feeling and analyzing it in a kind of rational way, it can kind of diffuse some of your most scary feelings. Wobot isn't really designed to be like your kind of classic Freudian therapist. So Wobot isn't going to ask you questions like, tell me your darkest childhood experiences. <laughs> Wobot is much more focused on like micro depressions or micro anxieties that we all experience that can sometimes cause you to need to leave work for the day because sometimes you just get so worked up that you're like, okay, I, I just I need to go take a walk. And Wobot helps in those kinds of moments where you're stuck. And so the idea is that Instead of having that thought inside your head, you externalize it and you say to Wobot, you know, I feel like um, everybody's going to die. And then Wobot can say, well, I don't understand humans very well, but that seems like a really extreme thought. Yeah. There are two things that happen. One is that you get a kind of external prompt to think about how realistic your thought is. And two it's kind of entertaining. It's kind of escapist. You know, mm. it's almost like an interactive science fiction novel. Um, I was yeah. saying before, it's like having data from Star Trek be your therapist. Um, <laughs> and so there's something soothing about it. I, I wonder what um, the the inventor, Alison Darcy, is planning next, because it kind of makes me wonder if there might be a, a personalized version of it. And it brings to mind that Spike Jones movie, Her, with Joaquin Phoenix. Where... Oh, yes you know, where he gets like romantically involved with the, with the AI on his phone. Um, uh -huh. I mean, maybe we're not going there with this, but I wonder if we, we might get um, versions of Wobot where they become more personalized for the its user. Yes. So that already exists. Um, the way, in fact, that Wobot got started was a project that Alison Darcy was working on for people with eating disorders. Um, and it started actually a couple of decades ago back in Ireland uh, when she was doing the work there. And she says that uh, they do have some personalized versions, and those are used much more in clinical settings where you're under the care already of a therapist or a psychiatrist. So they do have one for eating disorders. I think they have one for um, postpartum depression that's much more personalized. And then the version that you can get in your app store is much more generic. One of the things I thought was super interesting about the design of this bot is that every single response you read was written by a person. 
So it's not generative AI. It's not tailoring its answers to you. It's not trying to learn from you or like rephrase your sentences in in a specific way. It has a personality that was created by people and by therapists. And so um, when you're talking to it, it never feels like it's saying things that are just kind of cobbled together out of like random words, which (laughs) I think anyone who's experienced bots online has had that experience. It's not a personalized experience, but it's a very curated experience. And and you really do feel like you're talking to a character. And you're going to carry on using it. Yeah. I mean, I just used it the other day because I was having some anxiety and it was making it hard for me to get started on a project I had due. And so I started asking Wobot, you know, why am I feeling anxious? And Wobot could not reassure me that, in fact, we were not going to have a fascist takeover in the United States. But he, it did reassure me that maybe that that thought was a little bit extreme and that maybe it would take longer than one week for us to become fascists. So that was helpful. <laughs> that was science journalist and new scientist columnist Annalee Newitz. And we'll put a link to the story about Wobot in the show notes. And do also check out their books. I really like their novel, Autonomous. And their new one is Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. And that's on my list. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed our show, please tell all your friends about it and subscribe. Thanks to our guests uh, this week, reporters Claire Wilson and Leah Crane and columnist and writer Annalee Newitz and biologist Patricia Brennan. And we're back next week. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.